Hello, testing, testing. Yep, good. Using the correct microphone. Hello again, it's Paul Scott here with part two for, of my weekend podcast on Sunday 30th of July 2023. This is the shorter section where I just ramble on about any sort of markets and macro topics that I've picked up on throughout the week. So as I always say, I'm not an economics expert, uh, expert but I'm just... Um, uh, uh, you know, a small cap specialist investor. So I like to try and understand the bigger picture. And I think that does impact how we uh, value shares, even if it's just to say we don't know what's going to happen. You need to have some sort of a view, I think. And then obviously you change it when the facts change. So what have we got this week then? Oh, as usual, I always say something about supermarkets, don't I? I picked up that Asda and Morrison's, which both, of course, had big leverage buyouts at probably the worst possible time just before interest rates shot up. Press reports saying they didn't, neither of them paid any corporation tax last year, uh, whereas the, previously they paid about $200 million per annum in uh, corporation tax. And this apparently is because the buyouts debt is tax deductible. Now, I thought they'd close that loophole. Now, I'm not a tax expert, and it's so complicated these days anyway. You you can only really be an expert in part of the tax system, even, even if that's all you do. Um, <clears throat> so I don't understand this. Maybe any uh, listeners could <clears throat> elaborate on this point and um, explain how it is that they can deduct all that interest and not end up paying corporation tax, because I thought the uh, HMRC had closed that loophole. So I'd love to hear from any readers who are tax specialists and can explain how it is that these uh, leveraged buyouts are still apparently managing to avoid paying corporation tax. (coughs) That clearly doesn't seem fair, does it? Okay, what are this? Oh, now the debanking of Nigel Farage and others with... uh, opinions that the woke brigade seem to have um, deemed are unacceptable, even though they're perfectly legitimate, perfectly legal, mainstream opinions. I find this deeply disturbing, the idea that banks are preparing private dossiers about their high-profile clients and then making sweeping, uh, thinly-based moral judgments on those customers and saying they don't align with our values. This is really Orwellian. You know, some of my friends, most of my friends, I think, don't like Nigel Farage, so they were all rather pleased that he was debanked. And apparently he was offered a communal garden at West account as an alternative to a Coots account. But, I mean, really, Coots, you know, thinking they have inclusive values, you've got to be joking. The whole point of Coots is that they they only allow um, wealthy people to have accounts there. So it's, it couldn't be more exclusive, really. Uh, but I find this all deeply disturbing. I think, you know, the silent majority need to start speaking up against all this corporate green wokewashing because it's taking over behind the scenes. And apparently there are these pressure groups now who've been extraordinarily successful at bullying companies and public sector bodies and charities into signing up for sort of half-baked accreditation schemes. I know Stonewall do one now, and Stonewall's actually been condemned by some of the people who originally set it up because it's totally lost its way. Uh, It's not supporting the gays at all anymore. It's totally turned into an extreme trans activist body, so I don't want anything to do with it. And I think, really, we've got to stop all this stuff. It's like the Stasi or something in Germany. You know, banks compiling secret dossiers against customers, you know, and don't celebrate it, because next time they might be coming for you. 
uh, if there's a change of government or, or whatever. So I'm very disturbed about this. And I think when we talk to companies, normally on webinars, I just switch off when they start going on about ESG because, <clears throat> you know, most of it, as I say, is they're just doing things because I think they feel they ought to. I don't think companies have any values at all. They have their only values are they want to make more money. Um, and they can do that by pretending to care about the environment and all the rest of it. So I'm pretty cynical about ESG generally. But having said that, there are some marvellous developments, like I think much more diverse boards now. They're realising that you know they need to get some women on the boards, some people with, with, with different outlooks. That's all very positive. So I've got mixed feelings about all of this. But I do think now when companies start talking about ESG, I'm going to pay more attention and I'm going to ask in the questions on these webinars now, have you signed up for any of these extremist groups like Stonewall? And there's something called B Corp, which is in today's papers, where they are, you know, they are pushing for a, a really very extreme agenda, which is not in the interests of companies I want to invest in. I think companies should just by default treat everyone fairly. Then you haven't got a problem. You don't have to sign up for these uh, policies where you... Uh, you know, make um, virtue signalling announcements that actually often have a, quite a nasty sting in the tail to them. So I think I want to make sure that companies are not in the process of destroying their own brands uh, in the way that Coots has done by, um, you know, doing things that are morally repugnant, quite frankly, like telling your customers to go elsewhere because you some, somehow don't represent their imaginary values. This is all very worrying stuff. And I think we need to question management about this, make sure that they're the right side of this issue on ESG, that they're doing the right things by default, but they're, then, they're not bringing their own company and, and reputations um, into dangerous territory where they're going to alienate a lot of customers who have perfectly sensible mainstream views. So I think the silent majority need to speak up. And we as overseers, of, in a way, of, of the companies we invest in, need to challenge them on this stuff and say, look, if you're signed up to Stonewall, uh, don't renew, because um, it's, it's not something you should be uh, getting involved with. Uh, an extremist agenda, in my view. Now, another US interest rate hike... Uh, why aren't the markets crashing is what I don't understand. And we have had some very good discussions in the Stockopedia Small Cap Valley Reports um, reader comments this week. I think most people who, who, are, who are vocal on the subject of macroeconomics seem to talk mainly from one ideology or another, um, which I don't think is always great. I think it's best not to latch on to any particular economic ideology. Just keep an open mind. Um, <clears throat> I don't understand why the markets aren't crashing in the US. Maybe uh, maybe they think these continuous hikes in interest rates could be quite short-lived. Maybe we go back to QE and low interest rates. I mean, is that what the market, market's gambling on? I don't know. One of the readers came up with a great point, actually. Excuse me. Sorry, I can't remember which reader it was, but they said... The short-term impact of all these interest rate hikes is that the, the, the it's pumping a whole load of money into the financial system because people are now earning interest on their deposits, whereas the time lag effect of rising rates on borrowers, um, particularly where mortgage rates are fixed, which they are, I think, almost entirely in the US, and certainly in, the, in Britain we have short-term fixes, sort of two to five years or whatever. So so the impact of the of the rising interest rates some people are suggesting, is to actually boost um, 
the economy in the short term as people receive interest, but they tend to have a lower propensity to to, to spend that money. I think that's the the drawback, isn't it? So look, none of us knows what the hell's going on, and I include all the central banks within that as well, because they're notorious for for, for consistently getting policy wrong, aren't they? Um, now, the Fed says no recession in the US, apparently. And the latest GDP read for Q2 in America was 2.4% annualised, which is up from 2% annualised in Q1. So that's pretty encouraging, isn't it, that the US economy is still growing at a gentle pace. Uh, 2.4% annual GDP growth isn't isn't excessive by any means, is it? Uh, but at least it's not going into a recession. Is that good? Is that bad? Well, I don't know. If it encourages the Fed to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing to higher and higher interest rates, it it just feels completely the wrong thing to do to me. This idea that they don't control inflation with interest rates anyway. It's an 18-month to two-year lag, so we've no idea what effect policy has done already. I know I go on about this every week, but I can't understand the sort of groupthink that's taken over these central banks. Mervyn King was going on about that in a fascinating interview he did with Merrill uh, Merrin Somerset Webb, which is on a podcast. So if you just search for the two names, <clears throat> an interview podcast. I put a link to it in Monday or Tuesday's Small Cap Value Report as well, and I typed up my notes from it. Very, very interesting what Mervyn King says. I've got a lot of time for him. Long-standing um, governor of the Bank of England, uh, far and away higher calibre than the than the guy we've got in at the moment doing that, I think, who doesn't seem to know what he's doing, coming out with the most alarming... Uh, statements and then six months later just just saying oh yes no we got it wrong that hasn't happened after all I mean really well I don't know how some of these people get into these positions of power so now UK inflation stickier than other countries and in America inflation's come down amazingly quickly down to about three percent total or four percent core I think uh, we're way ahead of that at 7.9% in the UK. Why would the UK inflation be higher than elsewhere? Uh, Mervyn King says it's got basically nothing to do with Brexit, but as he said, half of the population want it to be because of Brexit. So people believe what they want to believe very often. It's probably had some effect, hasn't it? Because it's created more friction with trade, so it might have had a little bit of um, effect around the edges. But as Mervyn King said, the, re- the reasons that you've had these big spikes in inflation all over the world is because of supply chain problems and the energy crisis. And you've got um, employment markets in Britain and America particularly that are running quite hot, very low um, unemployment, much lower than in most European countries, incidentally, which counters the um, the anti-Brexit view somewhat, doesn't it? Um, anyway, uh, let's not let's not dwell on that. One, um, I was trying to think, why would the UK have higher inflation? And I think possibly, I don't know, is the honest answer. But I, because I'm not an expert, but it seems to me that wholesale energy prices have come down tremendously and are now almost back to normal. I see, looking at the uh, looking at the figures. Um, but that doesn't seem to have fed through to household bills. I think maybe um, I don't know. They don't seem to be really on top of this issue. The government, I think they've they've let the energy providers profiteer, which they clearly are doing. We've had a couple of sets of accounts from 
um, several of them showing bonanza profits recently in the last week. So there are people making a lot of money out of households from inflated energy bills. And I think they, they need to just redesign the whole system so that cuts get fed through much, much more quickly to households. And that will benefit inflation, keeps inflation down or will bring inflation down faster. So that there needs to be something done on that, but of course... Nothing will happen. Never does, does it? Now, I got an email from Hargreaves Lambsdown, where I have my sip and my ISA, warning me that my portfolio is too risky. <laughs> so I thought, God, if only they'd known what I've done in the past with my geared accounts. This is a, a walk in the park. So uh, I just thought that was amusing. Now, the ECB has also raised interest rates by a quarter of a percent to 3.75%, well below uh, the UK, of course. Um, <clears throat> there's no doubt that the Eurozone is you know, leaning on Germany's balance sheet, which is giving cheaper borrowing costs to the other Eurozone countries. If you think, if you think that's worth it for giving up control over your um, economy, and, um, then that's a perfectly valid opinion. ShareSock, I thought, made a very good point in uh, their weekly roundup. They've said that the constant rule changes over pensions, and quite big rule changes is putting people off because when you put and I agree with that very much so when you put you know when you put the money into your pension depending on your age you can't normally get hold of that money in many cases for decades so <clears throat> it's given that every single budget it seems to be some tinkering on sometimes in quite major ways with pension rules you know who would want to just lock money away for many many years not knowing um what the rules are going to be when you actually retire so i do think that's right we need to we need to get away from uh, chances who are constantly tinkering with things and have some long term visibility of how these things are actually going to work uh, fed fed raised rates again yes i've covered that i think i'm deeply worried about these these rate rises central bank rate rises it's just all happening too quickly and too large. But anyway, look, we talk about that every week. Now, conflicting data. This is another problem at the moment, On now particularly on consumer confidence. In last week's podcast, or the week before it might have been, I flagged up the GFK, the widely followed GFK uh, Consumer Sentiment Index, which had been recovering very, very nicely since the autumn lows, um, and was sort of not a million miles away from normal. Well, it suddenly lurched down again in, in July, I think it was, six points, um, indicating that there was a, you know, caution was creeping back in with, with consumers. Well, anyway, another inf- uh, consumer confidence report, this time from Price Waterhouse, um, tells a very positive story. I was just reading through it a moment earlier. Uh, it's quite good, actually, well worth searching for that a big survey that Price Waterhouse do, they say consumer confidence in the UK now is the best it's been in 18 months and is near normal. Well, that's very uh, considerably different and more bullish than what GFK was saying. So I can't quite reconcile why we're getting different readings from those different organisations. Um, now, in terms of the companies I looked at, God, we looked at loads of companies this week, well over 50, I think, including the ones where we just did quick one-liners. Um, the consistent themes I'm seeing in UK small uh, small caps is that practically everyone's saying inflation pressures are now easing. 
um, apart from wages. Wages is still um, a problem, you know, with with very, very low unemployment. They're having to find ways to attract and retain their staff. So wage cost inflation is still a big issue. And companies need to find ways of becoming more productive. We need um, productivity improvements. And hopefully AI and other sort of computer developments might um, might be the answer to that, possibly. So um, something needs to be done anyway, doesn't it? We can't, you know, have most of the workforce just selling each other cups of coffees and, uh, and cupcakes. We need to actually do something a bit more productive, don't we? The other thing I'm seeing from companies in the Outlook statements, practically all com- well, not practically all, I don't know that, but a, a, a lot of companies updating the markets in the last few weeks refer to market conditions as challenging. That seems to be the main word that everybody's using. Um, but it's certainly sorting out the wheat from the chaff, isn't it? Which companies are able to adjust their overheads, you know, innovate on product and so on, and actually um, uh, continue trading okay, and which companies get overwhelmed by more challenging market conditions. You often find companies lay the groundwork in uh, tough macro for a really strong rebound in profitability, maybe to higher margins than pre-crisis um, in later years. So I'm trying to look out for situations like that where I see, um, you know, a possibility of a much stronger company emerging. Um, now, more profit warnings I think we're seeing at the moment. We had three that I can remember off the top of my head. Headlam, the carpets distributor, a fundamentally very good company, I think. that quite a, quite a nasty profit warning. One of the readers has just flagged that the latest forecasts have been roughly halved. But the way I look at it is I'm not valuing companies on a PE multiple of a bad year. What I want to look at is try and work out what normalised trading will be like, which could be a lot higher in terms of profits than what we're seeing right now. But that depends on making an assumption that companies, uh, the fall in profits at a company is, is just cyclical and it'll come back up, or whether there's something more fundamental going wrong at that company. So we, that's a judgment call we just have to make, isn't it? So Headlam, I think, looks quite interesting now, the valuation. And it bounced really strongly from the initial spike down on the opening of um, trade when you know, on a pretty bad profit warning. It opened down, I think, over 20%. I thought it was going to stay 20 30% down, as I wrote in the report. But it steadily recovered that throughout the, or a lot of it, throughout the rest of the day. I think it was drifting a little bit on Friday. I mean, all you can't read too much into share price movements of small caps, because when you look at the volume of shares traded, it's so small that you would only need one institution to just say, right, cut the cord, dump the shares in the market. And, you know, it could absolutely slam the share price down. So to a certain extent, I think share price charts on small caps are not really reflecting um, uh, reality because you'll have an awful lot of shareholders in that stock who can't sell. They may want to sell, but they can't because there's no liquidity. So that could really put a dampener on any share price recovery. You just don't know. So I think drawing lines on the chart is is not... It makes sense. I can see it makes sense in mid-caps and large-caps, but not so much in small-caps, I think. All sorts of things can happen. Then we have profit warnings from the marketing sector from two companies, a minnow called Mission Group. There's only a mild profit warning, but that's TMG. Um, I'm not I'm not looking at that one because it's got too much bank debt and a weak balance sheet from too many acquisitions, I think. And then Sir Martin Sorrell's thing, S4, 
S4 Capital. I don't rate that at all. I think I think we've got lots of reservations about that. The ticket is SFOR. That also dropped about 20% on a profit warning. So a bit of a pattern emerging there that marketing companies are finding things tougher. No big surprise, is it? People, companies cut back on marketing spend when they're finding it difficult. So it's fairly obvious, really, the sectors that are... Uh, that are are suffering but within that for for example I would have thought the DIY companies um, and building products companies would be finding it difficult which some of them are but some of them aren't you know we had a nice update from Wix WIX um, which um, is maintaining an 8.1% dividend yield and just announced a £25 million share buyback which is 6 or 7% of the market cap so they're sounding very confident um, whereas quite a lot of other building products companies and DIY type things are, are, are saying they're struggling. So it is difficult to, to sort the wheat from the chaff. It's not always obvious what's going on. Although I think both Wix and uh, Headlam do confirm my belief that, you know, uh, at this stage, when we've probably seen the worst for the share prices, it's, um, you know, where they're really strongly asset-backed and have great balance sheets with net cash and so on as, as those both do that you can ride out um any further softness in demand and you know it'll uh, it'll it'll all come back in the medium term whereas i don't want to be gambling on shares where you've got a wobbly balance sheet with too much debt i just think those can paradoxically give you your biggest percentage rises in a new bull market but i don't want to take the risk i you know after all that business i had with one disco which wiped out you know um a, a chunk of my portfolio which i've happily now got back by averaging down, breaking all the rules, but um, it worked in that particular occasion, which sometimes does. You can't always say that averaging, averaging down is always a mistake. There will be occasions where it's, it can be the right thing to do, and luckily I got lucky with that one. But, you know, I, I weighed up risk-reward, and I, I thought that was the right thing to do. So, why was I mentioning one disco? Oh, I can't remember now. I meant to talk about the indices at the start, but I forgot. So looking at the indices, there's been a really powerful rally in the FTSE 100, I see. Um, That seems to have bottomed out just over 7,200, and it's bounced now to 7,700 in just the last few weeks. That's amazing recovery on the FTSE 100, or rebound, although it's within the sort of normal range of volatility and zigzag movements that the FTSE 100 quite often does. It's quite surprising, really, given that it's uh, these very large companies, but quite concentrated into a few mature sectors, of course, the FTSE 100. Now, the FTSE 250 has also rebounded strongly from recent lows of just under 18,000 to about 19,000. So that's not bad, 19,100. So that's a, a good rebound, but again, looks a fairly normal zigzag type movement. Now, the aim is is the aim's, aim's bounced a bit. What's that? About five percent from the lows, I suppose, but still deep in a in a in bear territory, um, which I personally find really exciting. So that's where I can find the value. We've always um, said this that I would say probably two thirds of the companies on, on AIM are a waste of time, absolute junk, not worth looking at. But that doesn't change the fact that actually there are a couple of hundred good companies on AIM. So it doesn't matter to me if something's AIM listed or fully listed. Um, I just look at the quality and find, you know, a decent company. It doesn't matter to me.
where, where it's listed. So uh, I remain very bullish on good quality, reasonably priced AIM shares. I think there's a lot of tremendous bargains and value on offer there. And I'm not clouded in any way by the fact that it's been a terrible place to invest over the last year or two years. A horrible bear market. Well, that's when you get your buying opportunities, isn't it? When everyone's given up. Fund managers are forced sellers because of redemptions. You know, this is this is the time when you get uh, your your future multi-baggers, I think, by being brave and putting money to work when everyone else is scared stiff. Um, so yeah, I, I just focus on the fundamentals, not on not on sentiment. Right, that's it for this week. I'm taking two or three days off work um, at Stockopedia this coming week. I'm going to become a drizzle tourist, which is what they call, apparently, I love that phrase, what they call people who take a holiday in the UK. So I'm um, heading off to Norfolk, the north coast of Norfolk, and um, uh, staying with the family. We've uh, My brother's booked a, uh, a nice little holiday cottage uh, from a friend who's given us mates rates. So, uh, yeah, I'll be driving mum up there, but she's a bit too old to fly now. And uh, it'll be nice hanging out with the family. I'll be in contact still. I'll have my laptop with me. But Roland's going to cover for me for the small cap value reports for three days. And then I'll be working Thursday and Friday. So I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, going to going to Sandringham um, on Wednesday. So that should be nice having a, a look around there. So, um, But I'll do the podcast as normal next weekend. I should be home by then. So I hope you have a great week and thanks for listening. And do leave your opinions on, on Stockopedia. We really find them interesting. And as I say, a few, a few silly comments slipped through from me uh, after the pub on Friday. So just ignore those. I'm, I've asked for them to be deleted. They weren't serious. But it's funny. Things you think are hilariously funny when you've had a few um, don't seem quite so clever in the, in the cold light of day. So my apologies for that. You know, when I screw things up, I just apologise. Uh, you know, you don't you don't double down if you've done something wrong, which uh, too many too many men do double down when they've screwed up, and it's stubborn and pretty stupid. So I try not to make that mistake. Make plenty of other mistakes, but not that one. <laughs> All right, I'll love you and leave you. Thanks for listening. Bye.